Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are blessed to know you as our Lord and Savior, as the one to whom we can cry, Abba, Father, and the one who supplies our needs and sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike for the answers to prayer which we receive in our lives daily, sometimes without our even being aware of what you have done. Help us, Father, to be sensitive to the working of your Spirit and to the great blessings that we receive from you every hour of every day. <coughs> and Father, I pray in the process as we grow in you that we will be people of compassion and as we think of tragedies such as has struck Southern California, that in our hearts we will have concern and prayer for those people who have been touched in such a disastrous way by this calamity. And we ask, Lord, that even today, as churches are meeting in Southern California, that this will be a time of revival, that people will recognize that uh, uh, there, there are, there's a power far beyond them, and that we are... Uh, very puny in comparison to the Lord of the universe. And Father, I pray that many who have never given you the time of day will be caused to think of you today. And through this calamity, many will be drawn into the kingdom. Father, we know you allow all things for purposes that we sometimes cannot grasp at the moment. But later we will see the top side of the weaving and we will recognize what it is that you have been doing. Father, may we be people of faith in between this time and the time that we will see your plan. And Father, may we be people of prayer. Now bless this time together as we focus again on your word. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 35, Genesis 35, beginning at verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there, and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alan Bakuth. 35th chapter of Genesis is a much more blessed uh, view of Jacob in many ways than the 34th chapter. And as Jacob responds in his heart to, to God's working, we see really what you might call a revival occurring in his heart and in uh, that of his family. And they move on to the place that uh, God intended for them to go in the first place, 
back to the place where uh, God had appeared to Jacob uh, many, many years before, as he fled to probably 30 years before, as he fled to uh, Paden Aram from the wrath of his brother. We saw that one of the great fears that came into Jacob's heart as a, as a result of the third events of the 34th chapter was that the Canaanites would gang up upon him and upon his family and, and would wipe them out because of this, uh, tr this disaster which they brought upon the city of Shechem, this massacre of the Hivites. And, and, you know, you have to think about that. They didn't have newspapers in those days. They didn't have television. Uh, they didn't have telephone, but certainly the word traveled quickly by uh, runners, by, by individuals who were traveling through the land and said, did you hear? Did you hear? And uh, such news would travel very, very quickly. And so all along the way, they would be faced with potential danger from other Canaanite peoples who would look upon them as an alien element in their midst. But God, God had promised to protect Jacob, to be with him, to bring him back to the land. The implication was to bring him back to the spot where he had seen the vision of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. In order to do this, God intervened in a miraculous way. God did what only he could do. He struck terror into the hearts of the Canaanites, a terror that was irrational. There was no reason for them to be terrified of Jacob. I mean, certainly they could look from the hilltop down and see Jacob's family passing down there. And, you know, however many there were in his family and his whole entourage, certainly it wasn't a military host going down through the valley there that they would be fearful of attacking. There was an, an unreasoned fear. I, I think probably if there had been psychiatrists in those days, they'd have been very busy for a period of time. These people go, oh, I've got this fear I don't understand. You know, why I'm afraid of Jacob. But as a result, they traveled unhindered on what was a 20-mile journey uh, southward from Shechem to Bethel. And in the process of this 20-mile journey, they would rise about 1,000 feet in elevation because Bethel's up around 3,000 and Shechem's down around 2,000. There there's a couple of passages I'd like to just read briefly here. They're not noted on your outline, but as I was thinking of this unreasoned fear, this irrational fear, a couple of instances came to my mind where this seems to have happened again. I'd like to read uh, some verses from the second chapter of Joshua. All of you are familiar, of course, with the story of Rahab, the uh, harlot, and the attack against Jericho, which occurred many hundreds of years later. But notice her words here, or listen to these words in the second chapter of Joshua. Uh, she, the two men, uh, the spies, have come to her, and, and she's hiding them to protect them from the local FBI, if you will. Before, she, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. I mean, there was this, this again, a kind of an irrational terror. They'd not even seen the enemy. How did they know but what the word that came to them was, was you know, all blown out of proportion to reality? There's something in this passage, though, that is, uh, I think, very interesting. As you go through the study of Scripture, let, let me just uh, say this. 150 or so years ago, 120 years ago, there was a movement, as you know, in uh, the world of science, which brought into uh, currency uh, the concept of survival of the fittest, uh, natural selection, all these things which are brought together under the, con uh, under the title evolution. And Charles Darwin was uh, one of the leading spokesmen. And Charles Darwin had been trained in his early years to be a theologian, but he got out of that and became a naturalist, which in those days was just really somebody who was interested in, in studying nature. And uh, what is interesting is that the, the, what he taught and what he wrote in The Origin of the Species was quickly grabbed onto by other theologians. They grabbed onto it and they thought this has got to be the explanation because, you see, they didn't want to believe in miracles. There was a strong uh, resistance to the concept of miracle. You know, that God would somehow actually intervene in the affairs of men. They didn't want a God who did that. Because obviously if you have a God who does that, then somehow you're responsible to him in a way they didn't want to be responsible. These are theologians, leaders in the Church of England, for example. Um, and in the Catholic Church, too. In fact, one of the leading uh, exponents of, of evolution was, was a Jesuit priest, you know, of all things. And uh, the, the whole uh, f uh, movement produced uh, the concept of theistic evolution. And that is that science is right, Everything did evolve, but God is somehow responsible. You know, he is the one who got it all going and he superintended it. But, but there's no collision here between the God and, and, and this science because the, the scripture, if you read the first chapters of Genesis, those are, those are just, uh, uh, it's a, just a story. It's, uh, it's allegorical. It doesn't have literal meaning. And uh, the whole idea, for example, later on in Exodus of, of God actually drying up the sea that uh, the nation of Israel could go across, I mean, that's ridiculous. That would be God intervening in the affairs of men in the course of nature, and God doesn't do that. What they did was wade across six inches of water someplace. But I don't think these people would be very frightened uh, about a people who just waded across six inches of water somewhere. Um, she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. I mean, this guy was a whole lot closer to the event than modern theologians. She lived at the time. Uh, and so I would take her testimony as to what happened long before I'd take the testimony of some modern scholar who thinks he's all wise and, and decides that, you know, it was just some little shallow area that they went through a kind of a Reed Sea deal where uh, all, they didn't get their knees wet. She said, they were fearful because your God dried up the Red Sea. 
that had to be a miracle. It had to be something they just couldn't comprehend. And therefore, this God had to be so mighty and miraculous that they were afraid that they could not even survive in face of the nation of Israel. Uh, <laughs> well, you just kind of, uh, yeah, right. Jokes have been made about that, you know. How, how in the world, the hardest thing to explain is how you did wipe out a whole army in six inches of water. Um, you know, that is a problem. <laughs> but there's a way to get around that, you know. The whole thing is, is allegorical, you know. The, the army just got discouraged and went home. They didn't really die. 24th chapter of uh, Joshua in the 12th verse, we read another interesting thing. This is as uh, Joshua is, is bringing the people to the place of committing themselves to the Lord. And uh, then God is speaking here and God says, Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. In other words, the people, the Amorites, weren't really defeated by the sword and the bow of the Israelites, even though that's what killed them. But the fear was generated by God. It was God who sent the hornet, the, the panic, the fear that entered into the hearts of, of these Amorites as they faced Israel, and, and they literally melted before them and were destroyed by the people of God. So, God is able to intervene in a miraculous way and uh, to turn a situation completely around which, from our perspective, would be irrational. <laughs> why, why people should feel that way. Remember now, they're following the ridge route. Again, if you always picture in your mind three major routes in this part of the world, over in the coast, the Via Maris, over in the highlands, the King's Highway, and in between, the less used, but still well-traveled ridge route. And so they're moving south along this ridge route. Probably it was about a two-day journey, 20 miles, climbing 1,000 feet with a whole entourage of thousands of animals and everything. Uh, two days would be uh, pretty much minimal. Uh, I mean, it would take at least that uh, to travel that distance. They could have taken more. It, it's not important here. As we noted in the 28th, chapter of Genesis when we were back at that point, the Canaanite city that was sitting on the top of Bethel was called Luz, or Luz, L-U-Z, and that meant almond tree, and apparently it was still called that because in this passage it says Luz, quote, or parentheses, Bethel, and so the later name, uh, which we know it by today, was probably not current yet. And it would not be really until after the conquest, which would be half a millennium later, nearly, from this time. So they set up camp, somewhere probably on the lower slopes or maybe even in the, in the ravine at the bottom of uh, the hill there at uh, Bethel. And uh, Jacob set up an altar. Now he may have set up this altar on the exact same site that he had set up the original a pillar, as best as, of course, he could remember. Was the same stone there that he had set up originally 30 years before? Who knows? Uh, it's very possible that it was still there and that he was at the same site. And so he came there. He, he set up this altar. 
and he led his whole household in worship of Yahweh, in worship of the Lord. And I think as he led them, he told them the whole story of what had happened there 30 years before in little intimate detail. Now, I'm not saying at all that he hadn't told them the story before, but there's nothing like telling the story on the site that it really happened. It's sort of like studying the Bible in Israel and standing on the hill of Bethel and reading this or, or standing on the Temple Mount and, and reading about Jesus purging the temple, whatever. It just There's something about it that really drives home the reality of it all. And so it must have to his family here. And I think in the process, he recounted the blessings of what God had done in the intervening 30 years. Now, did he admit to his failures during that time too? We don't know. But certainly he said, this is what God did for me. He promised me that I would get back safely to this place. And he took me to Paden Aram, and he has given me this family, and he has brought me back here. I think it was a good time for the family as they uh, kind of established themselves in God's provision and God's protection. And I think it was great with great emphasis that he named the place Bethel again, only in this instance, more emphatically so, he said, this is El Bethel. This is the place of God, of the house of God. God being here doubly, if you will. Verse 8 of this chapter, 35th chapter of Genesis, is a little parenthesis here. Just kind of a little vignette stuck in the story here. And it's there because God wants us to be reminded of how important faithfulness is in his people. Now, we seem to have first encountered this lady back in the 24th chapter. I'll, there's just one verse there. I'll just turn back to it and read it. Genesis 24, verse uh, 59, where it says, And thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servants and his men. And so here we have this lady going with Rebekah when she was first to go down and meet with Isaac, to whom she was to be married. And, and this lady went with her. She's called her nurse. This lady was the handmaid, if you will, of Rebekah. I believe she was there at the time of the birth of Jacob. She was probably the midwife there at the birth. And I think she helped care for Jacob throughout his early years as he was growing up. And I think he had a strong affection towards this lady because of her presence in his early life. Now the question is, how did she come to be with Jacob at this time? Well, we're not told how it is she happened to be here. It's probable that Rebecca had died by this time. And after Rebekah had died, that uh, Abraham had no longer a need for this uh, lady within his encampment. And so Jacob invited her to come and live with him because of his special affection for this one who had been close to him in his young years. What this would imply, of course, if this is true, is that 
sometime after he arrived in Canaan, he had made this journey down to Hebron to visit his father and had brought Deborah back with him to his encampment. Would you like to come and live with me? After all, you have a special relationship with me. And, of course, you should meet my children because you are kind of a grandmother figure to them, or at least you will be if you live in my household. Uh, this may have occurred while he lived in Shechem. Remember, he lived in Shechem for several years. This is a direct implication, as we read there in Genesis. And so he probably made maybe more than one journey down to visit his father and, and his father's household. And so on one of those journeys, he brought Deborah back to live with him in his uh, encampment. She was certainly very old, and if she is, literally, the nurse referred to in the 24th chapter of Genesis, she would be at least 125 years old. Now, that might sound ridiculous to you, but you have to remember, uh, uh, Isaac himself, what did I say, Abraham? I meant Isaac. Isaac would live to be 180 and Abraham had lived to be 175. So, I mean, uh, longevity uh, for many was still a possibility, at least within the 100 to 200 year range for some. And uh, the events at Shechem and then the trip to Bethel must have been more than she could take at uh, that particular age. And so she died. I, I think she was buried with great care here and great affection as she was put there at the base of a terebinth tree at the bottom of the hill of Bethel. The tree was called Alon Bakuth, which means the oak of mourning or weeping. It was a sad day when this one who had been so important to Jacob and had in the intervening time become sort of a grandmother figure to his family was buried. I think that a servant, someone who had been a servant in the household, should be so remembered with such compassion and concern is a testimony to her years of loving and faithful service to the family. But I think what's important to us about this is what she symbolizes. I think she symbolizes the millions and millions of people down through the centuries of the history of the church who have stood faithful before God but have never been in the limelight. They haven't been up front and, and the obvious spiritual leaders of the community, but they were in the background. They were people of prayer. They were people of service. Uh, people who uh, died maybe without many even noticing but God noticed because one of the things God holds in highest esteem is faithfulness. We read in Lamentations that great is His, God's, faithfulness. And I think as that is a characteristic of God, He wants to see that as a characteristic in His people, in His church. As I thought about that, of course, came to my mind the 11th chapter of Hebrews and I'd like to read from the end of that chapter. Uh, we're always reading the first part of the chapter, and often we read the whole chapter, but we read about Noah and Abraham and so forth. But I'd like to remind us of the latter part of that chapter, which incorporates or encompasses numerous unnamed people. 
who were faithful to God. Of course, the 32nd verse says, this is uh, Hebrews 11:32. What more shall I say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, were uh, put foreign armies to flight. But notice as the transition as you go into the 35th verse. You move from these, these mighty men and leaders, you move to the unnamed people, many of whom did not conquer foreign armies, many of whom did not shut the mouths of lions, but were actually devoured by those lions. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheep's skins, in goat skins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, that is, in this life, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here were individuals unnamed thousands who were faithful to God and they paid the highest price in, in the sense of, of being killed sometimes in very, very painful ways. And these are the people that God holds in high esteem. They were not worthy of this planet. They were not worthy of those to whom they minister. They were worthy of what God would give to them as their great reward as they stood before Him. And I think Deborah simply symbolizes these people. A lady who was faithful to the task that was before her, did her job without fanfare, and she is honored by Jacob here in this life, but more so would she be honored by the Lord above. I think that's what God wants of us. You know, sometimes we have this thought that if I'm not up there, you know, doing the solo work or the preaching work or in the limelight in some way, I'm not really serving God. Well, that's absurd. I think the real servants of God, the people who really make it go, are the people who are on their knees faithfully interceding for what is going on. Because without that, you can just trash the rest of it because <coughs> it isn't going to happen. You know, no matter how brilliant the speaker, how glorious the singer, if prayer isn't behind it, it's just so much uh, hot air, in my opinion, and I think the scripture seems to support that. Let's look now at the next uh, few verses there in the 35th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 9 through 15. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. 
and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. By now, I think we should know the name of the place, right? It's appeared so many times in this chapter. Jacob has responded in obedience. God spoke, Jacob responded. Jacob has moved, Jacob has done what God commanded him to do. He was fulfilling his vow. He was listening to the word of the Lord. Therefore, God appeared to him. Now, to me, uh, even from this, we, we, we get the concept that if we want God to, to say something to us, if we want to hear from God, we had better be obedient. Because if we're not, we're deaf. We can't hear it even if he did speak to us. We need to be walking in his ways if we want to clearly perceive what he is saying to us. The again here, where it says God appeared to him again, I don't think refers back to the beginning of this same chapter where it says God spoke to him because it doesn't imply there that God was in any way visible or came in any visible form uh, to him. I think the again goes back to 30 years before when God appeared to him there at Bethel and then possibly also to 10 years before when God appeared to him at Penuel and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord during the night. Interesting that God reiterated his name change. Ever notice how many times scripture repeats things? How many times we're told the same thing over and over again? Why does God do that? Because God knows that we are hard of hearing, <laughs> that we are slow, that we, we learn it once and we forget it and have to learn it again. And so it's repeated over and over again from Genesis through Revelation. So God again appears to Jacob. And God again says, your name is no longer Jacob. Now, he'd already told him that 10 years ago. When at Pedul, he says, your name now is Israel. Well, the problem was, you know, Jacob means deceiver, and uh, Israel means one who prevails with God. What had Jacob been acting like for 10 years? He certainly hadn't been acting like one who prevails with God, or the whole Shechem incident would never have occurred. He was acting still like Jacob. He was acting like one who was still living in the flesh. For 10 years, between Penuel and this event, Jacob seemed little changed until just shortly before this episode when he finally heard God because there was a lightning bolt into his life. And the lightning bolt, of course, was the tragedy at Shechem. And so God repeats what he had to say. You're no longer the deceiver. You're one who prevails with God, so start prevailing. God repeated his name. And God was telling him, in effect, what I am asking of you is greater commitment and more consistency in obedience. And what God is asking of us all the time. He wants us to hear. He wants us to be consistent in our obedience. 
He wants us to be deeper in our commitment to him. Notice what God calls himself in this passage. He says, I'm God Almighty. He says, I am El Shaddai. Now, he had already appeared to Abraham in the 17th chapter of Genesis as El Shaddai. He had appeared and spoken to Isaac in the 28th chapter of Genesis as El Shaddai. He wanted Jacob to know, you're included, Jacob. I spoke to Abraham as God Almighty, to Isaac as God Almighty, and I'm now speaking to you as God Almighty. Hear me. You recognize that I am the one upon whom you can cast your trust fully and completely. You can believe in me. Is it true for any of us at any time that sometimes we're not really sure whether we can trust God because we're not sure he can do it? I mean, we mouth the words, certainly. God can do anything. He says, is anything too hard for me? But do we really believe it? Do we really act as if that's true? Or, or do we have this sense that maybe God isn't really going to do it or can't do it in some way? Because, you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, God can't forgive me because I've been so bad. But he's the almighty one. <coughs> Absolutely sovereign in the affairs of mankind. This isn't on your outline either. I, when I study these, I write the original lesson, and then I go over it again, I go over it again, things keep coming to my mind. And since I don't have a computer yet, I can't stick it in there. So I just attach it later. I mean, write it in here. But in, in the 99th Psalm, we, we read these words. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he. And the strength of the kings, of the king, capital K, God, loves justice. Thou hast established equity. Thou hast executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool because holy is he. He is the almighty one which means that all power resides in his hands. And sometimes we think, if all power resides in his hands, why do we have tragedies like we had this week? Why do we have unexplainable deaths that God could have prevented? Why do we have governments that are evil? Well, God is almighty, but God is up there. God up there is not Mr. Fix-It. He doesn't go around turning the screwdriver every time the carburetor gets a little bit out of adjustment. God lets us, pardon the phrase, stew in our own juice sometimes. You know, we get what we deserve. We choose not to walk in his ways and therefore calamity comes. And I'm not implying by that that earthquakes are the result of that. But I'm, I'm simply saying, if you look at the history of Israel, that when they stopped walking with God, he sent calamity into their lives. He brought discipline, often in the forms of, form of a foreign invasion. Now, how many of us will look upon a foreign invasion as just another common event of the day? You know? We would think of a foreign invasion as an absolute tragedy. I mean, unthinkable. And we'd think if we were, you know, if we're a Christian nation, how could God let this happen? God is almighty. 
the Lord reigns. In the sixth chapter of Exodus, God says something I think that's applicable here. In the sixth chapter of Exodus, in the first four verses, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. Now who is compelling him? <laughs> Pharaoh was the strongest ruler in that part of the world, possibly in all of the world, in terms of his sovereignty over his people. And yet he is compelled to let the people go. Who compelled him? The sovereign Lord. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. But I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But my name, by my name, Lord, literally Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Now, I think it's important for us to note here, if, as you read back through Genesis, you'll find the name Yahweh appears many times in the book of Genesis. And so we say, what's he saying here? The name Yahweh was not known to them back then, and yet Genesis is full of the name Yahweh. Well, there are, I think, two explanations here. One is that, of course, it is Moses who wrote Genesis. And, and Moses uses the name by which he had come to know God to refer to him throughout Genesis. But I think even beyond that, what he's really saying here is not that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know the word Yahweh, but they didn't really understand who Yahweh was in the, in the uh, deep meaning of the word Yahweh the eternal self-existent one. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had not come to the place where they could really grasp the totality of what it meant to be in communication with the eternally self-existent one. The one whom Jesus later would say, equate himself when he said, I am that I am, or before Moses was, I am? We might say, well, I mean, he's not really meaning anything special by that. Well, why did Jews get so upset? You know, he was equating himself with the eternally self-existent one. And by that concept, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not yet come to know God. But the term El Shaddai is a very, very powerful term. And by that name, they, they knew him. And by that name, they could live and walk in obedience. God also repeated the covenant promise that he had made. God keeps repeating his promises. How many times are his promises repeated in Scripture? Over and over and over again. Why? Because he knows that as we bump along through life, we're going to get punched here and punched there, and we're going to get to the place where we think, where are you, God? He wants us to know he's still there. And his promises have never changed. They are always the same. And, and so God repeats the promise that he had made to Abraham, that he had made to Isaac, and now he personally makes it again to Jacob. The original promise had been made nearly 200 years ago to Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis. And now God is repeating it again to Jacob. Through all this, what is God doing? God is challenging Jacob to be Israel. 
Stop being Jacob, Jacob, and become Israel, Israel. Live up to your new name. And when you think about that, that's what God is saying to us all the time. Live up to your name. You're a Christian, a follower of Christ. You're a child of the King. The Spirit of God is constantly challenging us to live up to the name that He has given us as children of God. In 1 Peter, we read these words. The church, the people of God, are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God. That's who we are. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 12 through 17, we have, to me, uh, a fairly clear statement of who we are as God's people. Romans 8, beginning at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Who are we? We are the sons of God. We are the children of God. We are heirs of God. <laughs> but what else can we think of being? I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It's an awesome thing. And, you know, the very fact that the term Abba Father is used in here indicates that we are, we are children of the King and therefore we can refer to Him by the intimate, endearing name Abba Father. Now, that doesn't mean we should just, you know, become buddy-buddy with God and walk around with our arm around His shoulder and, and just, jo you know, jovially talk with Him as if He were another man. We have to hold that awesome respect, but at the same time know that we're intimately related with Him. He loves us deeply and He cares about our needs, but He wants us to recognize that He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. And, you know, for us, it's really, how, how do you bring those two things together? We're accustomed through the history of the human, human race of people either standing in such awe of their God that they have almost no communion or possibility of communion, or we get so intimate that we forget that this is a divine one. But we have to hold that tension where he is intimate, he cares, we can speak to him about any need, but at the same time we hold him in tremendous awe as, the, as El Shaddai. Like Israel, which means prevails with God, that's really our name too. I think you're probably familiar with the first part of the book of Revelation where John writes a brief letter to the seven churches that were part of the circuit that he apparently uh, traveled on before he went into uh, exile on Patmos. And there in the second chapter, the 17th verse, 
He says, God, God is speaking, and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, churches. To him who prevails with God, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows who receives it, except but he who receives it. We all have a special name that God has given to us. And uh, we won't know that name until we receive this white stone, whatever, whatever that means. God will know, we will know. That will be the special endearing name that connects us with the Almighty One. But we are all known or are to be overcomers. And as you read through this second and third chapter of, Genesis, of, of Revelation, you keep finding that. To him who overcomes will thus and thus and thus. The overcomer. The overcomer is one who has been born again and, and justified by the blood of Christ, who walks faithfully with him. This is the overcomer. And this is what we're to live up to. We're to be overcomers. We are to be, uh, the name Israel can be translated prince of God or prince with God and is sometimes so translated. What is a prince? A prince is the heir to the king. And what does it tell us there in the 8th chapter of Romans? That we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the name Israel can be applied to us, and even is in the New Testament, where the church is called the Israel of God, as Israel was to walk worthy of his new name. So we are to walk worthy of our new name and our new position. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have, with which you have been called. How? With all humility. <laughs> That's a hard one. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we saw that passage in reality in the church in America, this country would be transformed. The churches would be transformed. Instead of bickering with each other over some, you know, different view of, of some doctrine. You know, I mean, we become divided over sometimes the stupidest issues. Which, of course, to the people who are divided, it's a big deal with them. But if you look at the scripture carefully, it's not a big deal. We hold these central truths. The peripherals, to me, are irrelevant. And if they divide us, there's something wrong with us. And it's because we're not forbearing one another in love. We're not preserving the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. We're not humble. We're not gentle. I think one of the biggest causes of collision between denominations is the lack of humility on both. You know, I'm in like Flynn and you guys are a bunch of jerks. And, you know, that's the attitude many have. And uh, we ought to all stand before God in other humility, recognizing that none of us is worthy to stand in his presence. Not a one of us, but for the blood of Christ. So our attitude, our words and our actions should be that which do not bring shame on the name Christian. And you know, sometimes that means not only not doing what the world calls wrong, 
but sometimes not doing which the things which cannot be shown from the Bible to be wrong, but which will cause the weaker brother to stumble or will cause someone near to the faith to turn away. Let me read from the fifth chapter of Galatians. Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brethren. In other words, we're all free in Christ. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is one of the big problems that wretches the church today. We think of our liberty and our freedom in Christ and we don't want anybody to touch our freedom and we don't give a rip whether it harms another person. Even if that person, it, it's irrational they think that way. Well, so it's irrational they think that way. But is it really going to hurt us if we do that which will help that person to, to grow in Christ? If we don't do some things that aren't biblically wrong? Is it really going to hurt us? Yeah, I don't think so. And Paul goes on to further uh, elucidate that in the first uh, book of Corinthians, the 10th chapter, where he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking any questions for conscience sake. In other words, it doesn't make a, a bit of difference what this stuff is that you're supposed to eat. It doesn't matter if it was offered to Satan himself. You're a believer in Christ. You've been cleansed by the blood. It has no power over you. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Now, I do not mean for your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Which is the very question many would ask. And he's just saying, okay, I understand that question, but this is the way it's supposed to be. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. Why? That they shall be saved. There are times when we need to avoid doing things which we cannot show from Scripture are wrong, but because someone with a weak conscience will interpret it as, well, if Christians can do that, I can do that, and it leads them down the road where they do not come to the faith or they forsake the faith. I think sometimes we need to analyze what we do and what our priorities are, you know. I think the Lord's Day, for example, Sunday, has been greatly prostituted uh, in our land today by Christians. And uh, not that, uh, you know, you can support from, from Scripture that we should still be living as they did uh, in, the, in the days of, of ancient Israel. But if we don't really consider Sunday to be, you know, unique or, or important in any other way, other than the fact we go to church and we just wish it would get over quicker, because we don't want to miss our ball game or whatever else, I, I think what we're doing is we're causing the world to look in at us and say, hey, they're no different from anybody else, you know. It doesn't really mean that much to them. So why should we care? I think sometimes we have chosen to live in our liberty to the expense of those 
who might come to the kingdom if they saw us living faithfully and, and, and showing respect to God and to his house and to his day. Well, running out of time here. I think the ultimate goal of our lives is to be the instrument that God uses in the salvation of souls. It's not just to live and to have a good time. The health and wealth preachers will try to tell you that the reason we're here is to be live healthy and to live wealthy. And, you know, God expects his people to all live like kings. Well, you have a hard time showing that in Scripture. Talk to the person who was sawn in half or the person who's eaten by the lion. Say, you're supposed to live like a king. What are you doing down there bleeding to death, you know? It, it just doesn't fit. We're not here on this planet to satisfy our fleshly desires, but to serve the king for the advancement of his kingdom. What does it say in Matthew? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then whatever else we need will be added unto us. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, I'll end with this. I, I think it's, it's defined, at least in part, in the very next chapter... You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read this verse in the seventh chapter of Matthew. Where, well, you know the story. Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and burst against the house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the flood came, the wind blew and burst against the house. It fell, and great was its fall. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? To hear these words of mine and to act on them.